Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today again is Moira Bradfield, who's a naturopath and acupuncturist who's been in clinical practice for over 17 years. Graduating with a Bachelor of Naturopathy from Southern Cross Uni in 2001, Moira has worked as a naturopath in a variety of settings with a wide range of health conditions and disease states. In the pursuit of blending naturopathic medicine with oriental modalities, Moira completed a diploma in traditional Thai massage in 2004 and in 2010 completed a master's degree in acupuncture. She's travelled to the United Kingdom, Thailand and China as part of her clinical training and interests in oriental health. She has a passion for considering the energetic principles underpinning nutritional interventions in client prescription and aligning treatment approaches with constitutional considerations. Moira blends this passion with a solid biochemical and pathological framework to create relevant and effective approaches to health and healing. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Moira. How are you going? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me back. So now today we're talking about group B strep infection. And first, when we start off, I think we have to say, well, we're talking about streptococcus, but which streptococcus and what group? So we are talking about streptococcus. And um, when we look at the divisions of streptococcus, most of us are familiar with some form of streptococcus. And a lot of us talk about group B strep, seemingly like we know what we're talking about as well. And, and you're right, there are these divisions that actually occur because there is a group A to that group B. Um, and they, when we're talking about group A and group B, they are both groups of um, beta-hemolytic streptococci. So when we talk about hemolytic, then it's the ability to bust open red blood cells, essentially. Uh, this group A, which is similar to group B in some ways in terms of what it can actually cause in, in the human body in terms of invasive disease, is actually streptococcus pyogens. And group B are Streptococcus agalactiae. Concentrating on the group B, beta-hemolytic streptococci, boy, that's a mouthful, uh, are there different serotypes of that one you know, subset? Yeah, there actually are. And the serotypes, and um, the research tells us there's 10 of them, um, differ in the polysaccharide capsules, and, and that defines their immunologic activity as well. In the research, when we look into the different serotypes, they're also associated with um, aspects of their virulence along with the toxin, the beta-hemolytic lysin toxin, but also sometimes the resistance that they have to certain um, antibiotics might be associated with that serotype. Now, often these can be commensals. Why are we so concerned about group B, beta-hemolytic strep? Well, you're right. They Often they are commensals and 
the incidence of carriage of Group B strep is anywhere between 4 and 40%, depending upon the population where they are in the world, what point they're screened. And that is in pregnancy and also in non-pregnant humans. So why we concentrate on group, um, Group B strep is because of the possibility that it can cause early onset neonatal sepsis. So when we're looking at um, pregnancy into postpartum, obviously, there's a risk for maternal colonisation to be passed on to the neonate during birth, and therefore that actually can develop into an active infection. And you you mentioned previously that, you know, depending on the serotype, it defines their immunological activity. Is there any effort to tease the different serotypes out so that so that a pregnant mother might know if they've got the dangerous one or the non-dangerous one or do they just go you've got group b um, strep so we're going to treat you Uh, at this point it's more you have group b strep and we're going to treat you Um, and there's a whole protocol surrounding that but in that because it's at this point it's still culture-based a lot of the testing that is widely available they do obviously antibiotic resistance in that testing as well. So in some ways they are identifying serotypes indirectly. Um, and But most of the time it's just about the ability literally of that organism on a blood agar uh, um, plate to have that hemolysis effect around it. And then there's also another test that they can do where they um, cross-culture it with Staph aureus and there's this beautiful arrow line that occurs around the cross-culture when the two intersect, Ah. based on the hemolytic activity as well of the strep B on the blood plate. So that's one bacteria interacting with another, causing what? What's this arrow line? Well, the arrow line is, it's more actually, if you look at pictures of it, it's quite amazing. It's, It's a beautiful geometric shape of an arrow on the intersection of the two microbes on the blood plate. Yeah. And it's just an increased or a heightened hemolysis of the blood and the blood agar because sometimes the group B strep, even though it has this hemolytic activity, it's not so pronounced that you can actually identify it. So even the current ways that we have identification, there's varying degrees of accuracy in that as well. So you mentioned, you know, obviously a major risk with regards to lysis, but what do we see? What does a patient present with and what are we trying to control here? Okay, so what we're trying to control and why group B strep is on somebody, everybody's radar essentially is in this at-risk group of neonates. There is obviously group B infection that occurs outside of pregnancy and outside of birth, and that's generally in the elderly and immunocompromised. And as a microorganism, it has the ability to actually cause infection in a variety of different sites. So everything from pneumonia to meningitis, effectively. So um, it depends on the person and the presentation. We know that in pregnancy, and there's a variety of different risk factors that they actually will assess in, in, in birth around the mother, but also the neonate, that would indicate that there's actually something going on. So certainly for... Um, mothers in labour, the presence of fever is indicative that perhaps there's actually an invasive group B infection going on there. So this is outside of carriage. And then in the neonate, we're actually looking for those signs of, of distress of sepsis. And they can be very, very subtle, obviously, depending upon um, your child. So there's this, you know, anywhere from 24 to 48 hours of quite intense um, observation that goes on, particularly if the group B carriage status of the mother is known going into labour. So they're looking for, obviously, respiratory distress, 
temperature and instability. Um, you know, if there's any sort of unexpected need for resuscitation in a neonate, any sort of apnea um, at that time, lethargy, seizures, feeding abnormalities, abdominal extension, blood glucose dysregulation, blood pressures dropping, metabolic acidosis, the neurological signs. So it's quite a broad list because as a pathogen, it can obviously become active and invasive in several sites. And when we're looking at the birthing and where those membranes are actually open to that bacteria being able to penetrate, um, that's obviously where that bacteria can get in. But in addition to that, we also see that there's um, it's theorised that certainly we can have the transfer of group B strep to the neonate in utero. Oh, right. And okay. that's actually with intact um, membranes as well. So certainly membrane rupture and, and preterm um, or early rupture of membranes is associated with group B strep as is preterm labour. But there is now this understanding that it's also it can actually penetrate through the membrane without rupturing and can um, cause an infection in the amniotic fluid possibly right. as well. So then we're exposing neonates in utero to active infection. And I, I guess you'd be th- you'd be looking at fetal distress syndrome in that instance. Would that be correct? Definitely, yes. Yeah. yeah. Fetal distress syndrome, yeah. So could you assume, not prove obviously, but could you assume then that if the mother had some symptoms, you were suspecting a group B strep, but the baby seemed fine, that you could assume that the the membranes, the amniotic membranes were intact and that there was little risk for the neonate. I guess where I'm going here is when do you treat? Um, most people will treat on on parturition and afterwards, correct? Yes, definitely. And I guess we need to define there when we're talking treatment because a lot of this is very medical and, and coming at this from as a naturopath who has a special interest in vaginas, um, you know, there's obviously lines that need to be drawn and my awareness and understanding comes from understanding the medical side and mm. the medical procedure around group B strep. So they certainly have protocols of treatment and intervention and risk assessment, which is, um, is a very quite global but do vary in Australia from state to state. We don't necessarily employ the same universal screening um, in every state in Australia or every territory in Australia, which is very interesting as well. When, um, as I do, I work obviously on the Gold Coast, which we have a border to New South Wales very close. So there's some interesting things when you have clients coming to you from both New South Wales and from Queensland where they have quite different prenatal care and screening going on and and the autonomy in their own health journey um, is different for each of those particular clients. Look, I can remember working hospital to hospital within a state and you had different procedures that were accepted. Um, So, you know, CSSD, the Central Sterilisation and Supply Department, would have different procedures for certain infections. Um, Now, whether that was because of proven sensitivity to uh, a bug in in that particular hospital, I don't know, but I just thought it was rather, um, let's say it was quizzical. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and well, we, we do see that as well. So even though I say that there's differences state to state, within each of those states, it's actually, um, so it seems, and as I said, my main experience is in New South Wales and Queensland, but from state to state, from care provider to care provider, they actually have the choice to implement uh, one of, there's actually three, but one of main, two main uh, protocols surrounding group B strep. 
So, again, it's dependent upon who the care provider that your client is actually seeing and what they're actually required to do in their antenatal journey in terms of are they required to have a swab, which is the universal screening procedure is to swab from 35 to 37 weeks. And then if there is, uh, if they're positive, group B, um, strep positive, positive at that time, then when they labour, they're actually given the prophylactic antibiotics at labour. So they don't treat it beforehand because uh, your status can change. And even if you were to clear it, you could actually have it come back again. Yeah, so they're Ah. just looking to have that essentially sterility um, of that microbe around the birthing procedure through the birth canal itself. With regards to the swabbing process, uh, does it matter if it's a low or a high vaginal swab? Uh, No, and a lot of the, well... Yes, but a lot of the swabbing that is actually adopted now is patient self-swabbing. So they know that there's actually three sites that they will swab and depending upon whether it's medical provider swab or whether it's self-swabbing, they can apply that how they like. So there's certainly a vagina. It doesn't necessarily have to be a high vagina, although in the hospital setting it often will be. Mm. Uh, And then there's a perivaginal and then a rectal swab or an, an anal swab. So um, I know with clients who, and, and myself included in pregnancy, was given a kit to go home with, um, it was a, a perivaginal and then anal swab. Yep, yep. Um, In that order, obviously, same swab. <laughs> yep. Um, and then what they actually know is that there's, so group B carriage is um, obviously like some microbes, they, from rectum to vagina to urinary tract. Mm. Um, so they know that there's actually a higher sensitivity rectally to swab it than there is in the other sites, essentially. But it depends on the instruction you're actually given because certainly I know um, that, you know, sometimes I see it where it's just a perineum swab, sometimes it's just a vaginal swab, sometimes it's vagina to anus, and sometimes it's all three yeah. when it's done in rooms. So, you know, it, it, there's a great variability just in the swabbing itself and therefore the collection and when we look at data because there is a great amount of data of the universal screening procedure because it is essentially universal there's a lot of countries that have adopted this particular procedure of 35 to 37 weeks and then initiating treatment from that um, that there's huge variances in how that's actually applied as well so um, there's a lot of things that actually go into this and treatment with antibiotics um, IV Yes, IV, and the the caveats around that are that uh, it, it, you need at least four hours before birth for them to have effect. So um, the judgment then is made on do we have a four-hour window. Um, so certainly things like cervical dilation are taken into account as well um, before we can implement it, and then it's an IV every four hours essentially through the labouring process, and then... Um, so that's with a group B strep positive um, mother. And then once the baby's born, then they go into observation. And then if they show any of those signs, then they're antibiotics as well. If it's IV, do you see more ampicillin being used or do you find that they're going for the bigger guns nowadays because of fears of antibiotic resistance, like, uh, you know, your vancomycin, clindamycin? So certainly um, the standard is benzyl penicillin. Benzyl, yep. Yeah. Yep, and then um, clindamycin and vancomycin are there. If in on culture, it's identified as being resistant, 
Or and then obviously we need to consider obviously penicillin allergy and everything else that goes on with that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it, that's the current protocol that I'm aware of in Queensland. So obviously that's where I'm dealing with this mostly. Um, so yeah, IV definitely, which obviously then can place some restrictions on birthing and movement and all sorts of things. Let's talk about naturopathic medicine and management. And I think to start off with, we need to answer the medico-legal issue. Do you treat it all? Do you treat it all? So uh, in Australia, as I was saying, there is this variability in protocol, which gives us some variability in terms of how we approach it. As far as I'm aware and the experiences that I've had with pregnant females is there's still autonomy in this decision as well. So regardless of what state you're in and what protocol is being applied, there is still the right of refusal to swap if it's a universal procedure. Um, and then they tend to move into then the risk-based um, protocol. And the risk-based protocol is if there are maternal risk factors in play, and, and that includes previous GBS pregnancies, um, pre- previous early onset GBS infection in the neonate, rupture of membranes that have been for more than 18 hours, um, and a earlier UTI in pregnancy that has been positive for GBS as well. So um, those are the things that put that maternal risk factor in play at actually birth itself. So if you refuse and then you go into a labour and then it appears that there are risk-based complications, then medically they will employ that flowchart essentially of antibiotics or no antibiotics. And that applies as well for the neonate on birth. So there is autonomy in that you can actually refuse swabbing um, and, you know, so not actually knowing status because the certain statistics tell us that, you know, certainly the infection of GBS in a neonate is devastating and has uh, quite a high mortality rate. So it's, depending on what you read, again, it, it can be up to 50% of neonates with active infection mm. um, can die. So, but the statistic of carriage in neonates to conversion to active infection is actually not as high a statistic as you would actually expect. So um, when we look at 40 to 50% of babies born to colonised mothers, um, sorry, 40 to 50% of babies who are born to colonised mothers will actually have EBS carriage mm. or colonisation, and then only about 1% to 2% of those will convert into infection. So to so, me, it's kind of like the, um, the risk of listeria monocytogenes, and that is that the risk in reality is pretty low, but if yeah. you're that low risk, you're the one, it's devastating. It's devastating, that's right. And that's what they're doing is they have a universal protocol that has been shown to you know, decrease neonatal mortality in some aspects. So there are some interesting statistics about what the screening has done. So that certainly there's an agreement that the um, prophylaxis or the treatment at birth has improved outcomes. Um, but the screening doesn't necessarily have changed that statistic at all, which is very interesting. And mm. then there's a whole array of factors around who they're researching and the fact that they're looking at a population that has had universal screening applied. So you can't really tease out a the bias. data that you need to tease out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, certainly it is devastating for the, that, you know, one in a thousand child, you know, essentially that will have this active infection. And, and the mother and then all of the complications that obviously come after that. But we also need to weigh up the, um, the risk of what we know antibiotics do to the infant mm. microbiome and, and the 
the array of unknown in that very early, you know, three months of what can actually occur in terms of the programming, essentially, and, and in utero as well, obviously, and the programming of the setup for the rest of that particular person's life. So, you know, the antibiotics that they use with group B strep, and there has been studies done on infant microbiomes post this prophylaxis intervention, mm. shows that between anywhere from three to six months that there's been a, a restoration of the microbiome compared to other infants who haven't received that. Um, but that's certainly only seen in those that are breastfed. So right. in those that aren't breastfed, that that you know return to a norm um, is is prolonged much longer past a year, and and then again you know all of that early programming in terms of metabolic and interaction and immunity that's the unknown. You don't know what you've done essentially, and and that's something I guess in, from a naturopathic perspective, if we're looking at preventative medicine, that's where our intervention is. Is what can I do to avoid? this even being a factor in this particular person's life. You know, if, if you're going to have the universal screening, let's make sure you get a negative, yeah. not a positive. Yeah, yeah. And then this isn't an issue. And then let's use our common sense in the hospital setting. If that child shows signs of distress or sepsis, intervene because that's life-saving. And certainly, I mean, I have a lot of friends, luckily, that are midwives and we've been able to have these discussions is that, you know, the approach is that they're observed anyway Let's just observe them, yeah, <laughs> essentially, yeah. and then make those decisions in the hospital setting. Um, it's also quite interesting, though, uh, along that observation line, um, is that you know, a lot of the early infections, so there's early and late onset um, group B infections, and the early is zero to seven days, and the late is anywhere from seven to 90 days. Um, so there's a big window there. The late onset infection is um, far less fatal than the early onset, and the early onset, most of that will occur within the first 24 hours post-birth. So there is that observation window. It is concerning, however, when we see practices in some of the hospitals where they are now sending um, parents home. It's concerning, but also encouraging in other areas where they send them home after four hours. Right. So that observation obviously disappears and, and is left then to the parents or the caregivers of that particular child. But we would have seen spikes in, you know, hemolysis at home if we had a real issue there, wouldn't we? Well, not necessarily because symptoms are not necessarily, you know, evidently hemolysis. <laughs> they right. are, you know, okay. fever and things like that. And yeah. again, you know, you've been a new parent, it's all very worry. <laughs> mm, true, very true. <laughs> and unknown and then people telling you that's normal and, you know, so I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the symptoms generally are, but if the symptoms are crying and apnea and things like that, that you may not necessarily be able to pick up on, then there's possibly a risk there. So certainly, um, if you get a choice, my recommendation, if there was any consideration of risk in the mother, would be at least a night in hospital. Mm. Um, you know, get some sleep and go home. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big one. Get some sleep yeah. now. Um, so yeah. with regards to naturopathic medicine, it, it, at the risk of sounding prescriptive, and I, I, tend, I don't like that, but it just seems like maybe there's a case that for, you know, let's say a month, that women, especially if they weren't going to breastfeed, receive some colostrum, some bovine colostrum. 
It's been shown to be active against a wide host of pathogens. It's pretty innocuous. It's a sort of active immune system for the bubba. It's safe unless it got a milk allergy, a true IgE allergy. So, I mean, any of those tools we have available that are safe in pregnancy, that can re-establish vaginal microbiome, that can support immunity, that can you know have those effects that we want in terms of beneficial outcomes in pregnancy. Those are the preventative outcomes. You know, there certainly has been research on lactobacilli strains of bacteria in group B strep positive women. But what those research actually tell us, and, and the statistics are significant enough that we know that it's quite a promising intervention. It's not complete. So in 49 um, women, this is a Taiwanese study, um, 49 women in the active probiotic group in a randomized controlled trial that were receiving you know, a two-strain lactobacilli 21 of them had a reversion back to negative. Right. And and this was the 35 to 37 weeks. So this is generally the agreement at that time is that whilst there can be some natural reversion to negative, um, that that was statistically significant enough. But they were using, that was an oral intervention. They were using two of them a day. And the time period that they actually had that um, in play was a little bit longer. So it was... Um, 28 to 60 days, depending upon at what time period they swapped them and picked them up and therefore when they delivered because they measured them at birth, which yep. is when they retested. Because we saw an Australian um, pilot study which used the same probiotic, from my knowledge, or slightly different strain, um, and they did a much shorter time frame, so 14 to 21 days, and did not see that trend at all. Gotcha. So what we actually need to consider is that this is perhaps something we should employ as general, you know, natal care mm. is that we need to consider that regardless of whether this person is going to swab themselves for group B strep, that we need to consider that that is a, a you know, a, a bacteria that can exist in the genitourinary tract and the rectum um, and that perhaps we need to diminish that count and get rid of altogether. And so probiotics, etc. Yeah, I think there's real facility. You know, like it's basically, uh, you know, set in stone that women should receive at minimum folic acid supplement. I would say not just a folic acid supplement because of the issue with covering up a folic acid, a B12 deficiency if you give folic acid and you don't know. So I would say at the minimum B12 plus folate, but I would prefer a multi. It's basically okayed you know, by government to say, give that. It's good for women to do that. And when you look at the cost benefit, it, it's worth it. I really think we're getting to the stage now where probiotics, they're safe in pregnancy. They're safe for babies, for neonates. There's a real facility for their use. The issue is the time that you take them in all studies. Um, so start early. Um, yeah, and then definitely. if you need to, maybe some colostrum as an additive, you know, call it an immune booster, if you like, but um, an um, uh, immune insurance. How's that? Yeah, definitely. And that's certainly part of my ongoing protocol is that we introduce them, you know, if not from the beginning, then at least from the second trimester and that they are carried through because we have so many other risks, not with just with group B strep, but, you know, certainly you want to prevent urinary tract infections yes. and you want to you know, improve immune status in offspring and, you know, we want full-term labours so that we avoid those other risks and we want, you know, vaginal deliveries if we can and inoculation if we can. So it certainly is a really important part of, of that type of protocol. 
Um, and if we do happen to get positive universal swabs, um, and there is the time frame as well to be addressing that, it, it goes in there in my clinical practice at much higher doses and intravaginally, in you know, addition to some other things that are a little bit more um, traditional in nature in terms of the research that backs them, because it's interesting. There's you know, for example, the vaginal use of garlic, which we've talked about before, right. um, is something that you know, anecdotally across the internet is very effective against group B strep. Um, in a petri dish, effective against group B strep. There's just been no research around it um, that I know of. I did find a clinical trial that was more about case collection and things like that but it, there's no results for that so it certainly is something you know inserting a clove that's been bruised or crushed or pierced um, and then using a vagina probiotic at the other end of the day that in my experience when we have had somebody retested you know if, if they're in a, a care facility that agrees to retest based on their second result then they go into labor um, that we've seen a reversion to a negative status and no caveats with the use of garlic with, you know, the sulfur compounds and burning or anything like that? Uh, well, yes. Um, certainly my uh, experience with the burning. Um, so we are, uh, you know, asking them to crush. I tend to get them to pierce rather than to crush because right. obviously then you've got more of a mucous membrane contact if you're crushing, yeah. um, which you may obviously need. But the burning is also higher when the um, epithelium is a little bit inflamed, which is more trending towards things like bacterial vaginitis, which can coexist. You know, there is some suggestion that group B strep, even though it's commensal, um, when we start seeing it being problematic, we are obviously in a dysbiotic vagina, if that's the the membrane we're actually looking at. So there is the possibility that other, you know, opportunistic anaerobic Organisms are existing at the same time in levels that they shouldn't be. So the inflammation there is um, usually surrounding those other organisms at that time. Um, so I haven't had that negative feedback. And, you know, generally you, there's not even the requirement in my experience to thread a string through it. It just pops out in the morning. Gotcha. So you, so then, you insert that overnight? Yes. So at the other end of the day when the lady inserts the next garlic clove they're doing the probiotic? Yeah. Because that would kill, the garlic would kill the probiotic as well, wouldn't it? Well, it depends, doesn't it, really? <laughs> I mean, what we we find is that certainly not all antimicrobials are antimicrobial against everything. But, Very um, true. In, <laughs> so you, you're obviously wiping out an opportunistic pathogen and allowing others to take its place in yeah. terms of beneficial microbes. So. Um, and, you know, and there's a whole other array around that vaginal dysbiosis that we might need to consider in terms of interventions, but it just depends on the clinical presentation. So at the very basic level, probiotic, possibly garlic, I mean, we see in that research that probiotics alone convert in, you know, nearly 50% of the time. Mm. Um, but you know, for me, you obviously want a I'd better want than 50% conversion. <laughs> 50% a flip um, of the coin. I wouldn't be comfortable yeah. with that. No, definitely not. So, you know, and because of what the other, what that means if you go into birth and, mm-hmm. and you're still positive, um, you know, certainly is not amazing for anyone involved. Uh, you know, and, and the repercussions of that, obviously, emotionally, but also on things like breastfeeding, um, you know, 
touch tone with a neonate, etc. So yep. it's quite widespread in what can actually happen if that's the track that you end up down. And obviously continue the probiotic afterwards to recover from antibiotic therapy as well? Definitely, yeah. You spoke about three to six months. Do you continue for that long? Um, possibly, not always that long. And again, it depends on the individual situations, what's going on, has there been mastitis? You know, and that obviously dictates as well what strains you might choose. We know that um, you know interventions in probiotics in neonates, you know, really affect the bifidobacteria at the offset because that's what they have a lot of in the beginning. Um, so you might want to be choosing strains that can be passed um, and then going from there. But also prebiotic therapy as well. You know, how can we actually mm. get this come up in the individual naturally? Because again, you know, probiotics. Uh, They're fantastic, but in many ways, there's still a stopgap. You know, you need to encourage the person, the organism, the human to be able to foster their own communities. Otherwise, it's always going to be symptomatic on one level. Moira, every single time we podcast, I learn so much from you and you bring out clinical pearls to make us um, all think more about what we're doing with our patients to help our patients always receive a better outcome. Thank you so much. For joining us and talking to us about Group B Strep today on FX Medicine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.